We've all had a uh, wake-up call moment of some sort in our life. At one point in time or another, I can guarantee that you and I, we've all, well, I know that I have. I'm about to tell you about one. But you too, you've been right there with me, having had a wake-up call moment in your life. And in that moment, I'm not just talking about just generally, just any kind of wake-up call moment, but a moment where you realized that there were other people that were counting on you for something. Maybe it was a group project that you did for school or for a job where you had to do some group work. Maybe it was the first time that you held your child. Maybe it was when you said, I do at the altar to your spouse. For me, one of those moments came on mine and Lacey's second trip to the grocery store as a married couple. And if you watch her while I tell this story, I guarantee she's going to be laughing. But Well, I shouldn't make this guarantee for you. Sorry, Beb, I just put that on you. Because she loves to tell this story to make fun of me. See, we had just gotten home from our honeymoon, and we headed to Walmart, which was probably our first mistake, uh, to buy groceries and go ahead and stock up our apartment. And so we've got our little list, and we're just checking off item after item. And so I'm feeling really good about our shopping adventure. Like, we have got this nailed, we are awesome, look at us, like we've been married for 50 years. But then we get to the French fries, and we run into a little bit of, of trouble. See, Lacey, yeah, Lacey points to the crinkle fries, and she asks, can we get these? And my response was less than ideal. I said, well, I don't really like crinkle fries, and then held up a bag of steak fries and asked, why don't we get these instead? Wouldn't these be better? So Lacey gets kind of quiet, and she just goes, okay. She takes the steak fries, and she, she puts them in the shopping cart. And I think at that point, I had at least some semblance of wisdom about me to, to ask the question, or say, you know, well, are you sure? We can get the crinkle fries if you want, but guys, just go ahead and prepare yourself. The words that came next are the most feared words in all of mandom. No, it's fine. It was, already, it was already too late for me at that point. Those of you, yeah, you laugh, but some of y'all, y'all are cringing. If you've been married for a while, then you know that at that point, when those words came out of her mouth, I should have had warning sirens and whistles just blaring in my mind. But we'd just gotten married, and bless my heart, I just didn't know any better. So we get checked out, we get in the car, we're driving home, Lacey is really quiet, and so I ask her the question, what's, what's the matter? What's, what's wrong? Didn't have to ask twice. Lacey is voicing her displeasure about uh, our getting steak fries instead of crinkle fries. Uh, but as she was explaining why this was a problem, it became clear. The issue wasn't that my wife just has this unhealthy obsession and passion for crinkle french fries. See, as it turns out, not only had I gotten the french fries that I wanted... But every single time that we came to an item where I had one preference and Lacey had another, it just so happened, and I don't know how, but the item that I preferred was the one that made itself into the cart. The french fries just so happened to be uh, the final straw. And see, that, that was an important moment for me. We had entered into a marriage covenant, and so I didn't need and could not afford to be just about my wants and my needs anymore. 
I was to care first and foremost about her wants and her needs, even in the realm of frozen fried potatoes. Her well-being needed to be a primary concern for me. So our scripture passage this morning, it comes from Titus 2, where Paul draws the connection between personal holiness and concern for the well-being of the church on the whole. So if we were to look at Titus 1, there's a lot of, of work that Paul does there that kind of sets up where we're at in Titus 2. We read in Titus 1 verse 5 that Paul has left his co-laborer, Titus, uh, to put the churches on the island of Crete in order. So central to this work would be Titus appointing pastors over the church, and Paul includes instruction for Titus as to what kind of men he would appoint to lead the Cretan congregations. They were to be, we would read in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, they would be above reproach, husband of one wife, not arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkards or violent. They would be self-controlled and holy. Additionally, Paul says that these men must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And this was imperative because of Cretan culture and its influence on the church there in Crete. Paul has already alluded to, at the point that we will jump into the text, he's already alluded to the reputation that the Cretans had, and he's done this by quoting uh, one of their own. He refers to him as a prophet and says of their own prophet that he describes the Cretans as uh, always being liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul adds his own comments to this testimony, just basically saying this testimony is true. Yep, that's, that's true of the Cretans. And so as you would expect, and as we see in your typical pagan culture, one challenge facing the Cretan church was the lack of restraint for men when it came to public behavior, specifically in the areas of alcohol consumption and sexual morality. But on top of the already loose Cretan moral code, you had an unhelpful influence that was making its way in from Rome. Coming from Rome, you had what was deemed and was called the New Woman Movement. And so this movement was an ancient sexual revolution of sorts that pushed for women to have the same sexual freedom uh, as the men of the society, which already noted that the uh, societal thought towards men's behavior was hostile to the kingdom of God, and so this too obviously is hostile to the kingdom of God. And so when you have the meshing of the, the Cretan culture with this new ideal, this was leading to adulterous affairs and lack of concern to tend to one's family. And so this led to difficulty for the church. They were being more influenced by the culture than they were being an influence to and in the culture. You had false teachers who were coming in and who were speaking as if they knew the word of God, and yet they were denying him with their works. And so this prompted Paul's instruction to Titus on how to lead and how to establish and build up the churches in Crete. So if you will, turn with me to Titus 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. It says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach 
what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the two things that I think we see in the text, and the first one is this, is that sound doctrine commands sound living. So right out of the gate, we see Paul detailing for Titus how he would aid the church in being a gospel light in a dark culture. But let's look closely at what it is that he actually says there in verse 1. His instruction is not teach sound doctrine, though he certainly wanted Titus to teach sound doctrine. His instruction is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He wants him to instruct the Cretans in what would result from learning sound doctrine, what agrees with sound doctrine, which is the verbiage I'm going to use the rest of the time, what agrees with sound doctrine. Now again, that's not uh, Paul saying to Titus, hey, just go light on teaching the doctrines of the Christian faith. They, they've probably got that. You don't need to worry about that. It's not that at all. Paul shows us in verses 11 through 14 at the end of chapter 2, or they're kind of, yeah, at the end of chapter 2, when he details the doctrine that was behind the instruction that he gives in the first ten verses. All the instruction that Titus would give to the church in Crete would flow out of the gospel. God in Christ Jesus has redeemed a people for himself from their sins, who now, eagerly awaiting his glorious return, set their affections on the actions and attitudes that mark them off as the people of God. Christ Jesus who paid the debt owed for the sins of wicked and rebellious humanity. Christ Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, having been raised up from the grave. Christ Jesus, who is returning to fully and finally establish his kingdom. This is what motivates and allows for those who repent and believe to pursue holiness. And so this morning the very first thing that I would say is that if you have yet to repent of your sins and trust in Christ Jesus for salvation, I pray that the word of God convicts you this morning that you would repent and turn to him in faith. It's this doctrine that provides the foundation or would provide the foundation and the framework for Titus's preaching to the Cretans. In verses 2 and 3, and then jumping ahead to verse 6, Paul lays out the things that Titus would teach that agree with sound doctrine. So to the older men, it says that Titus would teach them to be sober-minded. They were to not overindulge in alcohol and have it impair their thoughts. They were to be thinking clearly of holiness and how to walk in holiness and not have the effects of alcohol drive them to living lives that were not holy. They were to be dignified. They were to conduct themselves publicly and privately in a respectable manner, in a way that pointed to Christ and honored and glorified Him. They were to be self-controlled. They were to restrain and kill their sinful urges so as to be a model of holiness. They were to be sound in faith, grounded in knowledge of the Scriptures, in trust of the Lord, and in obedience to Him. 
They were to be sound in love. Their knowledge of the Scriptures was to lead to abiding love in Christ and abiding love for others. And they were to be steadfast in their faith, remaining faithful to Christ no matter what came. And then to the older women, Titus was to teach them to be reverent in behavior. They were to show deep respect for the Lord in all of their conduct. And specifically, this was related to, again, not overindulging in alcohol and not speaking slanderously of others, the two of which uh, most likely were coming together, uh, though not certainly uh, necessary for them to happen. And he was also supposed to urge the younger men to live lives of self-control. They were to stand out by resisting the desires for the lewd and sensual behavior that ran rampant in Cretan culture that they most likely were all too familiar with. The preaching of sound doctrine is vital to the health of the church. You will not have a healthy church without the preaching of the Word of God in a way that is true to the Word, that is faithful to the Word, and that is useful to life, useful for life and a life of holy living. But we see that, that Paul's instruction to Titus went beyond just his preaching. In verses 7 and 8, Paul gives Titus instruction regarding his own conduct. Even as Titus was preaching and teaching to the Cretan church how to be holy in word, in action, in thought, he himself was to be modeling holiness before the church and in the culture daily. He was to model good works in all areas of his own life. His conduct was to be honorable and it was to be respectable. He was to be someone that other people would want to be like, someone that they would look up to and want to emulate. He was to not bend his teaching so as to make it more acceptable to the culture surrounding the church. Instead, he was to stand firm in the truth of Scripture and allow that to be what shaped the church. In his own conduct, Titus was to be above criticism. Not that people wouldn't criticize, but if he was faithful in his own conduct, his critics would look like fools when they attempted to condemn him as a hypocrite. His own lifestyle had to be consistent with what he was teaching to the church and how they should live even as he taught it and as he rebuked those who taught and did otherwise. And then in verse 8, at the tail end of verse 8, Paul explains why this was so vitally important for Titus to live in this way and to appoint men as pastors who too would live in this way. Titus was to teach and to model what a life consistent with the Scriptures looked like so that the church could learn to live in a way that protects the image of the church and bears witness to the glory of Christ. He was to instruct the church in how they would uphold in high regard the word of God by living their lives in a way that was consistent and faithful to its teachings, all to the glory of Christ Jesus. Now, it would certainly be right for us to note, looking at this letter, that Paul was speaking to a specific pastor who was dealing with a specific people 
at a specific time in a specific place. Yet, the instruction that he gives fits the charge that has been given to all pastors at all times and in all places. There is is much in this text to help shape our understanding about the role of every pastor who is an under-shepherd over the local flock with Christ Jesus himself as chief shepherd over himself and over the flock. There can be lots of ideas about the primary responsibilities of a pastor. It's to ensure that the pews and the plates are full, that the church has appealing programs to preach messages that are uplifting and encouraging. But Paul shows us in Ephesians 4 that the Lord has given pastors to the church for a specific purpose. Ephesians 4, 11 to 15 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and teachers, shepherd teachers, pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." The pastor of the church is to first and foremost concern himself with the discipling of the church by preaching the word of God in a way that is faithful to the scriptures and useful for life each and every Lord's day. The pastor stands before the church body week in and week out to teach what agrees with sound doctrine. This is their solemn duty to be performed out of love for God and out of love for neighbor and out of love for the people of God. So then, for the believer, sitting under the right teaching of God's word should be the pinnacle of our week. It should be the highlight, the crowning moment of every week. We come together to be taught the scriptures and how to align our lives with them. We come so that we can be shown and convicted of our sin through and by the word of God, through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we come to gather to praise God for his infinite mercy and wisdom. In order to learn what holy living is, we must sit under the faithful preaching and teaching of Scripture. But, what happens if this isn't something that we regularly participate in? I've told you before that I'm a runner. I like to get up, and I like to go for a run a few mornings a week. But what if I chose, time after time, week after week, to just not drink water when I ran? Not before not after. Before long, I wouldn't be running anymore, would I? I would have become so dehydrated and so cramped up that I would not be able to function, not as a runner, not at anything. And if this went on long enough, we all know what would happen. I would die. That would kill me, would it not? It's no different when it comes to our sitting under the preaching of sound doctrine. 
If we think that we can live a faithful Christian life without consistently, regularly sitting under the preaching of right doctrine and its applications, then we are fooling ourselves. Without a steady intake of faithful preaching, we are going to dry up. And when our faith is tested, it will show itself to be dead and lifeless. We need week in and week out to bring ourselves to be refreshed through the right preaching of God's Word. But of course, simply sitting under the teaching of sound doctrine is no guarantee of sound living. It's necessary that we reflect on our life and reflect on the Scriptures. And we need to ask ourselves, when we find the presence of sin and the absence of holiness, not just say, well, am I not being taught rightly and put the blame on someone else, but we need to ask ourselves the question, am I believing sound doctrine? You can certainly receive instruction that is faithful to the Scriptures and that is very useful to you for your life and to live a life of holiness and simply not obey a word of it. I would argue then that this highlights all the more our need to regularly gather to be taught the Word of God so as to have it exposed where our understanding and application of Scripture is incorrect, where there is sin present in our lives, that we may be convicted by the Holy Spirit, which is a merciful act of a gracious God. There's not one of us who has matured to a point where we no longer need to be taught and reminded of the kind of character that agrees with sound doctrine. We must receive this instruction because we have a responsibility, just like the Cretans did, just like Titus did, individually and corporately to bear witness to the power of God to forgive our sins and to replace our desires for sin with appetites for holiness. But... As we saw in the text, participating in the life of the church is not just about sitting under the pastor's preaching. Though the discipleship of the congregation starts with the preaching of the word, the church body will also receive right instruction in righteousness by observing the the pastor's faithful obedience in his own life. The pastor is the one, or is one, that the whole body can watch faithfully submit himself to the lordship of Christ. The pastor models for the congregation confession of sin through his own confession of his own sins. The pastor shows how to be steadfast as he exhibits continued faithfulness to Christ through life's trials. At least a pastor who is worth his salt. Mark Dever, in his book Discipling How to Help Others Follow Jesus, says this about the example provided for the congregation by faithful pastors and how congregants respond to the faithfulness of the pastor. He says, It's all well and good for you to learn through the books of pastors who are dead and gone. It's fine for you to enjoy the sermons of other preachers on the internet, but Scripture calls you to imitate the faith of the pastors who spoke to you the Word of God. These are the men who will give an account for you. He's citing Hebrews 13, 17. I would encourage you to write that one down and look it up. The stakes are higher for them. So watch their lives as part of your discipleship. And from them, learn how to disciple others. 
The command that Dever speaks of comes from Hebrews 13, verse 7. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. If you look to the scriptures and are yourself convicted of where holiness is lacking in your life, consider this passage and what it teaches us that Christ has given to his bride, the church in a faithful pastor. Listen as the word is preached to you and strive to have your life brought under its teaching, to align your life with it. Observe the pastor's life who models holiness, knowing that he will give an account for his care of your soul. But don't do this just out of concern for your own holiness. As we recognize that we need each of us to have the word taught to us and faithfulness modeled for us, there has to be a connection that there are others who will need our help in growing and maturing in the faith. This text shows that the pastor cannot be the only one in the church concerned with discipleship. If we are living the life that is commanded by sound doctrine, then we too will be focused intently on the discipling of others. And so that's the second thing that we want to see in the text this morning, is that sound living requires more than just focusing on personal holiness. So turning back to our text, let's consider Paul's instruction to Titus in verses 3 to 5. I'm just going to read that for us. Again, so verse 3 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. We talked about that. But it also says, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we've seen that Titus was to both teach and model faithfulness to Christ. But in verse 3, we see that Titus's instructing of the congregation, his teaching to the body, was to include teaching older women how they would themselves disciple younger women. Titus's instruction to the older women called them to have concern beyond their own thoughts and their own actions. They were to invest themselves in the lives of the younger women, teaching them to be holy, even as they themselves were learning obedience to Christ. So, what did this look like? The older woman discipling the younger woman. Did they need to lead a robust study through a systematic theology textbook? I don't think Grudem had written his quite yet. Did they first before they got into any kind of discipleship relationship with anybody, did they need to go to the Bible school of Crete so that they could receive a more formal education in the Scriptures? No. As they were learning the Scriptures themselves, they simply needed to pass on what they were being taught. They needed to pass on the wisdom that they gained from learning faithful obedience to the Scriptures and to Christ Jesus. And so it's here in our text, I mentioned earlier the influence of the the new woman uh, morality coming from Rome, and it's here where we maybe kind of see that 
effect and why Paul was giving this instruction. Remember, this was a value system that was allowing for increased sexual promiscuity for women and was leading to an increase in adulterous affairs and the abandonment of care uh, for the family. So to combat this uh, increasing influence from this type of lifestyle, Titus was to equip the older women to teach the younger women a few things. They were to teach the younger women, love your husband, remember your marriage covenant, and be unwavering in your commitment to your spouse. They were to teach them to, to love their children Rather than forsaking their family, forsaking their children to pursue supposed liberation, they were to nurture and care for the children that God had entrusted to them. They were to control and put to death their sinful urges, maintaining purity in their words, their actions, and in their thoughts. They were to remain committed to the care of their own family, to love them sacrificially. They were to be kind to everyone that they came into contact with, and they were to follow their husband's leadership in the affairs of their family and to support him. And again, from verse 5, we have to note the reason why Paul puts an emphasis on these things. Like with Titus's conduct, the older women were to teach the younger women how to be holy in all of their conduct for the sake of the church and for her public witness, to hold the word of God in high esteem for his glory and his glory alone. That was to be the ultimate concern for the older women in the church, that the name of Christ Jesus would be revered among the Cretan Christians and that their public witness would be that he alone is glorious. And of course, Paul doesn't intend for this text to teach us that the only members of a church body that are meant to disciple others are the pastor, he has responsibility for all the dudes, and the older women had responsibility for the younger women on how to teach them to be good wives and mothers. No, this is sound instruction for women, young or old, married or single. This is sound instruction for men, young or old, married or single. The command of Christ following his resurrection is all-encompassing. Go and make disciples. Discipling others is what the church does. It is our God-given mission and purpose to make disciples of Christ that he would receive the worship that he alone is due. We are all, every believer among us, to be filled with such intense passion for the Lord our God, to be worshipped, that we throw ourselves headlong into the work of discipling others. Amen. It is not the sole responsibility of the pastor and the pastoral staff to teach the church body how to live a holy life. Amen. While those called into pastoral ministry are responsible for the discipling of the body. The health of the church depends on the body as a whole concerning itself with the discipling of others. But sadly, it seems that most often the case in the American church, and most likely, I'm sure the church in other places as well, that the guys who are paid to study and teach the scriptures who have been called to ministry, 
they're the ones who are wholly responsible for the discipleship of the church. Maybe we don't verbalize that. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't think in those terms. Maybe we do. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what other conclusion can we draw if the church body is not doing the work of teaching others within it how to follow Christ? I'm not even talking about sharing the gospel with a non-Christian, seeing them come to faith, and teaching them how to follow Christ, though that is also explicitly stated and commanded for every Christian to go and do. I'm asking, what does it say about who I think is responsible for discipling others if I am not making an effort to build real relationships with the people that we worship with every week? And just, just think about it with me. Who do we spend the most time with or tend to spend the most time with week in and week out? Is it not the culture in our churches to gather in small groups, Sunday school classes, and even sit in the worship services with people who are in the same stage and season of life as ourselves? Is it not the norm to follow the same pattern when we get folks together to go out to lunch after the service or to have in our homes on Saturday night. And now I'm certainly not suggesting that to build relationships with people that are in the same stage and season of life as you is wrong. That would be foolishness on my part. We need accountability from those who best understand our season of life because they're in it with us. But if we only ever spend time with people who are in that same stage and season of life as us, then we're missing what Scripture clearly communicates about the need for intergenerational relationships and discipleship within the church. Those of you who are older, you have life experiences that younger people, for the most part, just don't have. You have had far more opportunity to learn faith and obedience to Christ in all the messes of life in most instances. And for the sake of the witness of the church, young people desperately need you to show us that. But this requires humility on the part of young people and willingness then to pass along what we learn. There's no room for pride. There's no room for either side to say, we're just too different. I can't teach them anything. They don't have anything to offer me. They're not going to listen to me. They don't care what I have to say. There's no room for that. The witness of the church is at stake. The glory of Christ and his worship is at stake. But this isn't just about a 70-year-old discipling a 30-year-old. As you are taught from the word, from watching others, and from life experience, we each have a responsibility to come alongside others and teach them how to be faithful to Christ Jesus. We need 35-year-olds who will disciple 20-year-olds. We need 40-year-olds who are giving instruction to 30-year-olds. 50-year-olds giving instruction to 35-year-olds. And we need 20-somethings who will give sound instruction in holy living and in the Word of God to other 20-somethings. Single or married, young or old, student or employee, stay-at-home parent or working parent, discipleship is essential to the life and the vitality and the health of the church and her public witness to Christ. We all have a responsibility one to another regarding our walk with Jesus. It's not wrong 
to acknowledge the responsibility that is placed on pastors to disciple others outside of the context of the preaching ministry of the church. It's also not wrong to expect that you'll be able to look to the pastor and the pastoral staff to model faithfulness in discipling others. We ought to be held accountable for that. But if your opinion is that discipleship is someone else's responsibility, or maybe you're just not concerned with the work of making disciples, then you are in error and you need to repent. But even as I say these things, even if you're agreeing with me, you may have different thoughts running through your mind as to why you just don't think that you can disciple someone else. And I say that because I know that I do it. I know the things that run through my own mind as to why I shouldn't or can't or won't. Maybe I feel that it's presumptuous for us to think that we can teach others to be faithful to Christ. And yes, it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that anyone, ourselves included, can mature and grow in the faith. But if you have thought that, or if you are thinking that, or if you ever think that, might I ask you, would it not be more presumptuous of us to live as if the command of God that is given through the Word to teach others the Word is not for me? While the Spirit, and the Spirit alone, does the work of transforming lives, we are yet responsible to be obedient to the commands of God and to seek to teach others His Word and how to live by it. Maybe it's that I'm too introverted. I'm just so uncomfortable talking with others and I struggle to get to know people. But do you consider that those other people, the Lord knows them and He desires and alone deserves their worship? Yes, it may be hard to build intimate relationships with others, but it's for God's glory and it's for the good of those around us. So may we strive to do it even when it's hard. Maybe it's that I don't feel like I know enough. I don't have enough life experience. I don't have enough Bible knowledge. 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6 to speaks directly to this thought. Paul says there, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. The very Spirit of God indwells us, teaches us the Scriptures, and convicts us of our sin. Formal training is fine. If you have the time and the resources to do uh, some sort of seminary program, great. But seminary is not a biblical requirement to make a disciple of someone else. Believers are sufficient because of the work of God. Is that not enough? Maybe it's that I'm afraid that discipling someone else will just be awkward, and I just can't handle the awkwardness. I don't really have an encouraging word for you there. It will probably be awkward because it's going to require openness, and it's going to require honesty from both parties. That means open and honest confession of sin. It means prayer. It means accountability, and it means rebuking one another when the presence of sin rears its ugly head. But I ask... Is that better dealt with and worked through now or at the judgment seat of Christ? Maybe it's simply that I'm just too busy 
or the person that I'm trying to disciple is too busy to meet with me. If it's the person that you want to disciple who simply will not take the time to meet with you, then move on to somebody else. That's on them. They'll have to give an account for their lackadaisical attitude about learning and maturing in the Scriptures. But you will have to give an account for your own obedience to seek to disciple others. And, well, this person just wouldn't come along with me is not an excuse that I think I want to offer at the throne of Christ. If it's a matter of your own busyness, and really any reason that I've just listed or anything else that we might could come up with as to why we are not engaging in the discipleship of others, I would ask you to consider Jesus' interaction with the scribe from Mark chapter 12. You're probably familiar with this text. The man asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies to him in Mark 12, 30 and 31, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus told his disciples, we have this recorded for us in John 14, 15, that our love for God is shown through our obedience to his commands. Our greatest love for our neighbor is not shown through meeting their physical needs, though that that is important, but rather our love for neighbor is shown through being most concerned with and seeking to meet their spiritual well-being. So how can we say that we're truly loving God and loving our neighbor if we're unwilling to put in the time to invest in other people that they may learn and grow in obedience to Christ Jesus? When you became a member of this church, you entered into a covenant with the other members of this body. If we are going to thrive as a church body, and dare I say survive as a church body long into the future, it requires that we each care deeply about our brothers and sisters in Christ and that they are modeling holiness in word, deed, and thought and seek to teach them how to do so. Scripture demands that we, out of love for Christ, care enough to aid one another in living in such a way that glorifies Christ Jesus. So I ask, what sort of public witness do you desire for this church to have in this community? I'm sure it's that you desire for it to be positive, for the word of God to be held in high esteem by this church body in the community, and for the community to see that. I ask you, is it your desire to see the word of God held in high esteem because of faithful obedience of the saints who gather together as Emmanuel Baptist Church? Again, I'm sure you want that? And if so, are you willing to put in the work to disciple others and in the process teach them how to disciple others so that they repeat the process so that long after you and I are gone, the process of making disciples continues? While it's right and good to be concerned with our own holiness, we must concern ourselves with the faithfulness of other members in this church body. Living a holy life, one that is in agreement with sound doctrine, includes discipling others. And so if that's lacking in your life, then I might ask you to consider a little more closely how important personal holiness is to you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, your word is good. 
It is convicting. Quite honestly, sometimes it can be terrifying to recognize just how holy and mighty and glorious you are and to be confronted, oh Lord God, with my own sin, my own laziness, my own apathy. God, forgive us. But Lord God, may we not just hear these words and take them in and roll them around in our heads and think, oh, that's a good idea. Someone should disciple someone. No, Lord God, convict us of our own need to be taking the things that you have taught us from your word, from the life experiences that you have subjected us to, that you might refine us and make us into your image and teach others how to walk in faithful obedience to your word. Lord God, you are holy. And Lord, you deserve all of our praise. You deserve the praise of this whole world. Lord God, may we recognize that and desire that. Desire that you, Lord, would receive the worship and the praise from the people of this world that you alone are due. And Lord God, wanting that, may we strive to teach others your holy word and how to live according to it. That you would receive that praise, that glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name I pray.